0: Well, thank you, music team, for helping us to sing together, to sing praises to the Lord. I'm blessed this morning to be able to bring the Word to you again, and thank you for being here, for coming back. We've been looking at some judgment passages, so it's always a joy to see the folks come back and continue to hear about judgment. And we're really blessed, though, all joking aside, to have a church that loves the Bible. The last couple of weeks someone will be up here asking me a question, and and we'll look out and see everyone fellowshipping after the church. And I think it was Hector who said we should just start another service right away. and, And everybody wants to stay around, and we love each other, and we love the Word. And it's the same on this last Wednesday night. I think we had one of our largest Wednesday nights in Adventure Club, and of course the men's and women's Bible studies, and the youth Bible study, and we finished out Wednesday nights for the season, but wow, what a joy it was just to see all the people in here on a Wednesday night, all because of God's Word, because of Christ who's given us His Word, but we're, we're coming to study about Him. We're coming to learn. The kids are learning the Bible, so that's a, a blessing. Let's turn to God's Word this morning, Romans chapter 3. We have now left chapter 2 and entered into chapter 3. I want to bring to you a message entitled, The Faithfulness of God. We're going to look here at the first four verses in chapter 3. But the argument Paul makes, it runs all the way through chapter 8 here. So we're taking the first half of that major chunk, and then next week we'll look at, Lord willing, the second half. But I want to read to you all the way through verse 8. Romans 3, starting in verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. What then? If some did not believe, does their unbelief abolish the faithfulness of God? May it never be. Rather, let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and overcome when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is the God who inflicts wrath unrighteous? I'm speaking in human terms. May it never be. For otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if through my lie, the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I still also being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as we are slanderously reported, as some claim that we say, let us do evil, that God may come. Their condemnation is just. There's always... People who question God. There's always people who question the character of God. Often today, you see attacks made against the Bible. You see attacks made against the character of God. We know none of them are true. None of them are really going to last. God will always prevail. But sometimes even Christians, even believers, can doubt the faithfulness of God. People can think, well, God's not going to take care of me. Sometimes we start to get depressed and we think there's no hope. We think that God doesn't work that way anymore. He just doesn't do what the Bible says that he will do. Maybe we forget the passages that promise that God will take care of us. Passages like we just read in Psalm 104 that God provides even for his creation. And yet we often think that God is not going to be faithful. Well, this passage really should remind us of the faithfulness of God. God will be faithful to every single thing he has ever said and ever promised because it is who God is. It is his perfect character, his perfect person, and he is always faithful. Now, in this passage that we just read, Romans, 1, Romans 3, 1 through 8, Paul had brought up four objections. We'll look, as I said, the first two this week, and we'll look at the next two next week. But these are objections that the Jews have towards Paul's teaching, towards his preaching. The Jews really don't like what Paul has been saying, and remember he started back in verse chapter one, chapter one talking about the Gentiles. And the Jews could have agreed with that. Of course, Gentiles are sinners. They don't have God, they don't have the Bible, they don't have circumcision, they don't have the Abrahamic covenant. Of course, they're sinners. And Paul talked about how they indeed are sinners, and they're without excuse. They can see in creation that there is a God. They know in their heart that there is a God, and yet they turn away from him. They don't worship him. They don't honor him. They don't give thanks. Then in chapter 2, he also says the Jew is without excuse as well. Not because they don't know that there's a God. Not because they don't know that they should worship him. They know all those things. They're in the scriptures. The Jew is without excuse because they sin. As well. The Jew sins as well. They know the word of God. And they still sin against it. And of course the Jew. Entrust, they, they, they trust that they have the Bible. And circumcision. So they will escape judgment. The Jew thinks. Well of course the Gentiles will be judged. But not us. We have the Bible. Like many cultural Christians today. We went to church. We have the Bible. We were baptized at a certain age. This was the Jewish thinking. Even more so back then. They trusted and things they had done to save them from God's judgment. So Paul told them, look, if you have the Bible but don't live it out, what does it matter? The Gentile, and he's thinking of the Gentile who gets converted, who does what the law says, who gets converted and from their own heart wants to obey God and strives to please God, that person's better off than the Jew who has the law but doesn't obey it. And then he attacks circumcision. We looked at that last week. And Paul basically says, what good is circumcision to you if you don't have a circumcised heart? If your heart is not born again, if you're not believing upon Jesus Christ as your Savior, is where he's going to come to at the end of chapter 3 with that. What good is circumcision if it doesn't reflect anything about who you are on the inside, who you are in the heart? Well, now Paul is going to deal with specific objections. Because you can imagine any Jewish person that is hearing this, or reading this, is going to have some objections. It is as if Paul is saying, well, there's no advantage to being a Jew. That God said something in the Old Testament and promised them something, and yet now Paul is preaching a different message. Paul is going to defend the truth. He's going to defend his gospel, which is the true gospel. And he's going to address those specific objections. Now, the passage, verse 1 through 8, is a very... Terse passage, there's a lot of questions. In fact, many Bible scholars and pastors say this is one of the most difficult passages to interpret in Romans. I I don't think it is that difficult if we look at it in context, but it does have challenges. And the main reason is because there's these rapid-fire questions. And sometimes it's confusing. Is Paul talking here, or is this the objection that is being made against him? And so he'll often state the objection, and then he'll answer it. He'll state the objection, then he'll answer it. And he doesn't do like we would today clear brackets and, and quotes and tell us who's speaking. He just hits rapid fire as if he was preaching a sermon and just saying right directly to the person in front of him, Here's what you believe, and here's my answer. Here's what you believe, and here is my answer. Now, the main issue that Paul addresses here is that based on what they've just said, what he just said in chapter 2, that does not at all mean that God's faithfulness has failed. It does not mean that God is unfaithful. That's that's their big objection. Paul, you are preaching that God is no longer faithful to the Jew. And so he answers these objections. Let's look, first of all, verses one and two. God blesses, God blesses by giving his word. God blesses by giving his word. Here's the question Verse one then what advantage has the Jew? In other words, how how can this gospel even be right, Paul? You said circumcision doesn't matter. You said the law doesn't matter. It's as if the Jew is equal to the Gentile when it comes to salvation, when it comes to spiritual matters. And that seems to go against all the Old Testament. Or they put it a different way. Or what is the value? What is the value of circumcision? Literally, what is the profit of belonging to the circumcision, to the people who are circumcised? It's the same question as saying, what advantage is there to the Jew? Remember, we talked last week about how circumcision is a sign. It's a sign that you're in the Abrahamic covenant by physical descent. And he's already stated back in 2.25 that there is value. Look back at Romans 2.25. For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you're a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. And he's already established that an unbelieving Jew, one who hasn't trusted in the Messiah, is a transgressor of the law. They are breaking the law. They are sinning against the Lord. And Paul says that's no value. You can put the outward appearance of circumcision on your body, but it doesn't matter if there's no change in the heart. He's clearly stated that. And circumcision would be a physical sign that somebody had descended from Abraham, but it wasn't a sign of what had happened in the heart. Cutting away of the foreskin of the male reproductive organ doesn't show a person, doesn't show anyone, including God, of course, that your heart has been changed. It was just an illustration. That's why God gave it to Abraham in Genesis 17. It was an illustration of man's depravity and how it would continue from generation to generation, which drives us to a savior. Circumcision was a reminder to the Jews that through the man's seed, from Adam on down, we are all sinners and we need a Savior. And that should drive us to to look, Paul says, it should drive the Jew to look for the Messiah, to look to God for salvation. See, the problem is that the Jews that Paul is speaking with here, they were hypocrites. They said they followed God. They said we love God and His word, but they didn't obey it. They were always going around saying how the Gentiles were so sinful. They didn't obey God's word. They were hypocrites. And so they object here to Paul's message. Your message is not biblical. Your message is not biblical. It's not what I think it should be. That's the Jews. They had invented their own belief system, and it was legalistic. That's what a legalist is. A legalist is somebody who comes to you and tells you, you should do what I say. But they don't have a Bible verse for it. It sounds biblical. It sounds godly. The Jews were saying, well, if we have the Bible and we have circumcision, we are saved. Paul, what are you doing? You are not preaching our gospel. You're preaching some other gospel. And Paul says, no, no. You misunderstand. Hold on. And so he starts to explain. But you can understand that the Jew, often as unbelievers do, will double down in their defense. They will say, how dare you? Like unbelievers do today. How dare you tell me what We should believe. You'll find people today saying, how dare you throw the Bible at me? Don't quote the Bible. Or they'll say, yeah, that's what your book says, but that's your truth, and I have my own truth. The Christian has to keep going back to the Word of God and proclaiming it and hoping that God will open blind eyes and open the heart so that a person can believe. And that's what Paul is doing here. He is defending the faith. He is defending the gospel. Now, he's going to surprise us here with his answer. He's going to say, you must understand, I meant that there was no advantage to being a Jew when it comes to the judgment. If your heart is not right, it doesn't matter that you're a Jew when it comes to judgment. But there is a benefit. There is value to being a Jew in this life. And he says, verse 2, great in every respect. It's great in every respect. There is a spiritual advantage to being a Jew in every way, he says. If we really consider what God has done. And he says, first of all, chiefly, the main issue here is that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. This is the first one in a list. He says, first of all, the first of many advantages in this life is that they've been given the words, the oracles of God. Now he never lists anything else. He just camps out on that and then he moves on from there. So you began to wonder, well, what are the other benefits, Paul? Paul. Paul often does this. He'll say, first of all, and he'll talk about that one. And he doesn't come back to second, third, fourth. Or we have to dig for it. And in this case, if we go forward to Romans 9, he does list some other benefits to the Jewish people. 9, 4, and 5. He's talking about the Israelites, the Jews. And he says, "...to whom belongs the adoption as sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises." whose are the fathers, talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh. Jesus Christ was a Jew himself. He told the woman at the well, salvation is of the Jews, meaning it comes forth from the Jews. And Christ is over all. God blessed forever. Amen. So there are benefits, but they're all centered around this one chief great value and God. Of the oracles of God. They were given the words of God, in other words. They were given God's very words. We can't really understand that when it comes to the ancient world. We think of today the fact that we've had the Bible for over 2,000 years as Gentiles, and the Jews have had it even longer. But in the ancient world, you knew that there was a God. You knew you should thank him and honor him and do some kind of sacrifice for your sin, for your sin guilt. But how do you do it? And even the pagans understood if you sacrifice the wrong way, the God could punish you. The God could kill you. The God could curse you. The God could wipe out your family that you worshiped. They don't have to wonder in... Israel, though, they have the words of God. He has told them specifically what to do, how to live, how to worship, how to sacrifice. They have the oracles of God. The Greek word is logia. Logia, the sayings of God. The same Greek word is used three other places. So let's look at those in the New Testament. And you'll get an idea of what Paul is talking about here. Acts 7.38, it's used. And this is where Stephen is about to be stoned. He's about to be stoned for preaching Jesus Christ in uh, in and around the the Jewish people. And he's going to proclaim one last sermon before they stone him. And he's talking about Moses there in Acts 7, 38. He says, Moses is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness, together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai. So the angel of the Lord is taking the words of God and delivering them to Moses who was with our fathers. And he received living oracles to pass on to you. So what did Moses receive on Mount Sinai? The words of God. God told him exactly what to say. He wrote them down on tablets of stone. He brought them down the mountain. Yes, the first ones were destroyed when he threw them down, but he had another copy made and he brought them to the people. Hebrews 5.12, this word is used again. For though by this time the writer says, you ought to be teachers. Speaking to Christians, Jewish Christians, you ought to be teachers. You have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. So there he's saying the Bible as a whole. The previous passage in Acts 7 was just the law of God. The books written by Moses in particular. Now in Hebrews, he's saying the whole Old Testament. Old Testament are the oracles of God, the sayings of God, the, the writings of God. And the writer in Hebrews says, all Christians ought to know more. And these that he's writing to in Hebrews don't know very much about the word of God. They've gotten lazy when it comes to studying God's word. First Peter 4.11 is the last one here in the New Testament. He's talking about gifts, spiritual gifts here. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the oracles of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So let's go back to that first part. Whoever speaks, whoever has a speaking gift, whoever has a teaching gift, what are they supposed to do? Are they supposed to teach their experience? Are they supposed to teach what they think they're hearing? Are they supposed to teach whatever is the coolest, most popular thing? What does Peter say? If you have a gift of teaching, you're going to teach what? The oracles of God. The words of God. You're going to teach the Bible if you have a teaching gift. You want your preachers and teachers in the church to explain the oracles, the sayings of God, the Bible, because that's what matters. What else do we have? Our own opinions. If we don't go to the Bible, we just have opinions and experiences and what we think. That's the way so many churches have gone off path because they're not proclaiming the oracles of God. They're not seeking to understand Scripture and teach that. And parents are then not equipped to do that with their children. And generation and generation goes by and people don't know the Bible. But they say they're Christian. Well, the Jews had the oracles of God. They didn't have just man's word. Yes, men wrote them down, but they were directly from God. We get an idea of how this happened. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God. All of it. The Old Testament and what will be the New Testament when it's finished is all breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. In other words, God has given us his word. And it is sufficient for what we are to do, both in the church and in our personal lives. You can read at a later time, Second Peter 1, 20 and 21, the process by which the Holy Spirit oversees the word of God being written so that it is without error, that it has the authority of God because it's His word. All of it. All of Scripture is breathed out by God. We don't get to pick and choose what parts to believe, what parts we really like. The parts we don't like We don't want to hear those preached in church. We don't get that choice. We preach the word. And God knows what's best for us, and he gives us all of that in the word. It's why we do expository preaching here. It's why I love to go passage by passage, verse by verse. You don't get to skip the hard parts. And then no one can accuse me of picking my favorite passages because I'm just going verse by verse. Oracles of God, how important is that? It's so important that they had a Bible. No one else had a Bible. The Jews had the Old Testament. No one else had the words of God. So what he's saying here in Romans 3, 2, is that God had blessed them with that. God had blessed them by giving them the word, which told them how to sacrifice, yes, how to worship. But it also told them about the promises of a coming Messiah. The sacrifices were just supposed to be for a time. There is one coming, though, who is the Savior, who is God himself. All of that is in the Old Testament. God has spoken to Israel personally and exclusively. Deuteronomy 4, 7, and 8. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as is the Lord our God whenever we call on Him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? Paul knew that. He knew that Israel had been blessed with that Bible. Now today we have the Old and the New Testament. Even as Gentile Christians, we have the whole Bible. But then it was just the Jews who had the Old Testament. Psalm 147, verse 19. He declares his words to Jacob. This is God. His statutes, his ordinances to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any nation. And as for his ordinances, they have not known them. Praise the Lord. The psalmist is praising the Lord that he has given them his word. They would be in the dark. The word is a lamp. It's a light unto our path. Why? Because we can see things truly as they are by the word of God. Without it, we're in the dark. Now, if Paul's saying this to the Jews. What does that mean for the modern Christian who sets their Bible aside and lets it collect dust? What does that mean? Let's, let's assume the Christian is truly converted. They truly uh, have a new heart, but yet they've gotten lazy and set their Bible aside. They have the oracles of God right there. Everyone's got a copy. I've got copies all over my house, my church office. We have them in all the pews here. And yet we set it aside. What can that be? It's the oracles of God. It's the sayings of God. Let's not fall into the same accusation that Paul is making against these unbelieving Jews, that they have the Bible, and the implication here is they haven't believed it. They haven't believed what it said. They haven't really even studied and read like they should, and they haven't believed the promises of God. These are the scriptures that promise the Messiah, the very one Paul's preaching about, and they are not believing in him. They are turning away from him. How precious the Bible should really be to us. Paul was proclaiming the vital, essential nature of Scripture. He wasn't worried about someone saying, you worship the Bible, you Christians. You get the Bible out in church, and you read it, and you basically sing hymns from it, and you pray according to what's in Scripture, and you preach it, and all you do is talk about the Bible. Paul wasn't worried about that. People sometimes, when they don't like Scripture, they'll say, you worship the Bible. You commit bibliolatry. I once had someone tell, us, tell me that about our church. Y'all worship the Bible. My Jesus is not just found in the Bible, this person said. I want to hear something different in your sermons, not what's in the Bible. I said, I'm sorry, man, but I have to preach the Bible. That's what God has told me to do. I'm under judgment if I don't. And we can't even know who Christ really is unless we know the Bible. God has set the parameters on exactly who Christ is and what he's done. And We don't get to choose some other feeling outside of that, we go to Scripture. It sets the boundaries. It sets the parameters. This is why one old Bible preacher and scholar said, No man and no people have ever esteemed the Word of God too highly. If you're truly born again, you really can't esteem the Word of God too highly. Just read the Psalms. Read the Psalms and see what they say about the Word of God. So that's the first point. God blesses by giving his word. This is in verses 1 and 2. Now the second one here is that God always keeps his promises. God always keeps his promises, verses 3 and 4. Because they have the Bible, the question then comes up, okay, so what, Paul? We have the Bible, but not all Jews believe. Not all Jews believe the Bible. Not all Jews follow what it says especially in regards to the Messiah. Paul says, what then? So he's going to pose this question in writing here that the objector would say. What then? So what if Jews have the Bible, in other words? If they go to hell like the Gentiles, then the promises of the Bible, the objector is saying, must not be true. Because they're looking for a, an outward thing. They're looking for something outside of their own heart to be saved. And they're saying, so what if we have the Bible, Paul? We're still going to hell as a Jew, you're saying. Why are you saying that? Paul has a great answer. If some did not believe, does their unbelief abolish the faithfulness of God? Here Paul is contrasting here the lack of faith of the Jews with the faithfulness of God. And all of these words have to do with, with pastivo or pastia, which has to do with faith or belief or unbelief, a pastio. You put the a in front of it. And so let me translate it literally for you. If some were unfaithful, Will their unfaithfulness abolish the faithfulness of God? The history of the Jews, if you read the Bible, the history from Mount Sinai all the way through Revelation is just one of rebelling against God. The Jews continue to rebel against God, even in the New Testament. It is just rebellion after rebellion. Not every single Jew, there are some who trust in the promises. There are some who have faith, but yet so many. Paul says some, but but so many have turned away from God. So many did not believe. They were not faithful. They said they were a follower of God. That's what all of Israel said in the book of Exodus. Yes, Lord, we will do what you say. We are your people. So God says, here's my law. And immediately, what did they do? They built a golden calf. The calf just jumped out of the fire, Aaron said. I just threw gold in and out came this calf. It's not my fault. They have rebelled. Over and over. They do not believe. There is no faith. They are unfaithful. They lacked faith, Paul says. The objection he's answering and about to deal with here has to do with the fact that the Abrahamic covenant was unconditional. If you were a physical seed of Abraham, then God said he would bless you. And they're looking towards that. But there's one thing they forgot. Abraham had faith. The Abrahamic covenant presupposes his faith. Paul's going to talk about this. Look at Romans 4 and verse 3. Abraham had saving faith placed in God. Look at Romans 4, 3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed he had faith in God and it was counted to him as righteous. Paul's going to come back to this in in Romans chapter 4, and he's going to talk all about how Abraham is saved by faith, not by works. The law wasn't even around. You couldn't even do the works of the law. Abraham is saved by faith, justified by faith. So the covenant, though, is unconditional. God will bless the descendants. God will bless them. But they had forgotten that Abraham had faith. Yes, Jews have a lack of faith. They did in Paul's day. They did from the time of Mount Sinai forward. Most of the Jews lacked faith in the true God. They lacked faith in the coming Messiah. And so now they're throwing this at Paul. And he's saying that doesn't prove anything about God's faithfulness. It does not abolish the faithfulness of God. Yes, God said he would bless them. Even in the Mosaic Covenant, he said there would be blessings. But don't forget, there's also curses. And the Mosaic Covenant... It's conditional. If you obey God, you will be blessed. That generation of Israelites, when they obey God, they will be blessed. When they disobey God, they will be cursed. And they were unfaithful. They even went into exile. And some Christians today look back and said, that's it for Israel. They went into exile. When they came back, the promises are done. But Paul is saying, that doesn't say anything about the faithfulness of God. It doesn't abolish, it doesn't invalidate God's faithfulness. They were unfaithful. But what about God? God is faithful. God is faithful. He promised to bless them. He promised to save them. But he did not say when. You see, the Jews, they trust that each generation would be saved. That every Jew would be saved and be blessed and have all of these great things from God. He didn't say that. They have to believe. They have to have faith. That's how God is going to save them and bless them eternally. In fact, he's going to fulfill all the promises he made to them. Go forward in Romans chapter 11, and we're going to see this. Romans 11:25. Instead of waiting a couple of years till we get there, I just want to read it to you without, without too much comment. Y'all thought I was joking on that. Some of the newer people thought I was joking on that. Romans 11:25. For I do not want you. This is Paul, still Paul, the same apostle who's really going at the Jews in chapter 2 and into 3 because they don't believe in Christ. And they need a savior. Romans eleven twenty five. For I do not want you, brothers, to be uninformed of this mystery. So he's talking to the Gentiles. He doesn't want them to be confused. So that you will not be wise in your own estimation. Because as Gentiles, we tend to think, now we're better than the Jews. See, early on, the Jews thought they were better than the Gentiles. Now as Christians, sometimes we think, oh, we're better off. And we are if we have the savior. But look what he says. That a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. They've been hardened. It's partial, though. Some are being saved all throughout church history. The first Christians were Jews who had converted to to saving faith in Christ. And he says, so all Israel will be saved. He's not talking about circumcision of the heart here like he did back then. He's talking about the nation, if you read it in context. A deliverer will come from Zion. He quotes the Old Testament. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. Who's Jacob in the Old Testament? That's not the church. That's Jacob. That's the descendants of Abraham. That's Israel. This is my covenant with them. That's a promise he made. When I take away their sins. He's telling us how it's going to be done. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. The Jewish people were enemies to the early Christians. They were, they were persecuting them. They're enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, They are beloved. From the standpoint of election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. Not because they are somehow special, but God will keep his promises to the fathers for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. They can't disappear. They can't be abolished. See, the Jew was trying to throw that at Paul. Well, Paul, some Jews don't believe. So, you know, you're saying God's a liar. No, they're irrevocable. For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience. So also these also now have been disobedient that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. Now is the time of the Gentiles. Jesus said there's a time of the Gentiles. They're most of the church. They're the ones that are coming to faith in Christ. But there is a time coming where he says, all Israel will be saved. When is that? When Christ comes back. But we're not saying, like some not too far from here would say, we're not saying there's two ways of salvation. That's not what Paul's saying. He's saying all Israel will be saved, but how? Through the forgiveness of their sins. Through faith in Christ. All it means is the Jews living when Christ returns will believe in him. God will change their hearts so that they can, just like he did all the Gentiles throughout church history and some of the Jews during that time. Does not mean you're born a Jew, you don't have to believe in Christ, you can be saved. The Bible's clear, and Paul's clear in Romans 2 and 3. That can't happen. You can't just be born a Jew, you, have your Bible, and be circumcised, and somehow be saved. He is really going after that idea. But God is always true. There's not two ways of salvation. There's only one. And God is faithful to keep his covenant, though. He is faithful. Here's how MacArthur Study Bible summarizes this. God will fulfill all the promises he made to the nation even if individual Jews are not able to receive them because of their unbelief. God did not say when he would save all Israel. Paul's just telling us it will happen. So here's how Paul answers that. May it never be, verse 4. Will God be proven unfaithful if an individual Jew doesn't believe? This is the strongest possible way he could say it. May it never be. King James, God forbid. There's no other way to say it in Greek stronger. Certainly not. It could never happen that because somebody doesn't believe that proves God wrong. I've heard sometimes atheists who say they don't believe in God because one of their parents died when they were young. So they chosen not to believe, believe in God because he let them die. You see the problems there and the person's mind? They say they don't believe in God but they're mad at him because he let them die. It doesn't make sense. Most of Atheism and agnosticism comes from those types of things. Well, God is always good. And Paul says God is always true. May it never be. May it never be. Rather, let God be true in every man a liar, as it is written. So the problem is not with God. If bad things happen in our life and people we love die and bad things happen in the world, the problem is not with God. The problem is that we don't understand. The problem is we don't understand what's going on in God's mind and why he would do such a thing, but it doesn't mean that he's evil. In fact, the Bible tells us over and over he's good. We know that he's good. Even the pagan knows that God is good. He blesses them with rains that fall on their crops too and with babies that come from their families too. Paul says, says, let God continue to be true. To be trustworthy is the idea as he truly is. Let God continue to... To be trustworthy and faithful, even though every single person in the world might prove to be untrustworthy. If all the Jews denied God, he's still true. He's still trustworthy. But God's word tells us that all the Jews won't deny him, that some will come to faith. And eventually, at the end, all those alive will come to faith. Rather, let God be true, he says, and every man a liar. He's pointing back to Psalm one sixteen eleven: All men are liars. All mankind, as we've descended from Adam who committed the first sin, we we follow in him, we inherit his nature, and then we follow in him by sinning. We're liars. And our nature, yes, when we're converted to Christ, we have a new heart. But God never lies. The Christian, even the Christian who has a new heart sometimes lies. God never lies. When God says it, it will happen. Whatever happens, God is to be trusted. People don't keep their word. People let you down, but God will never do that. God never lets you down. We see that over and over in Scripture. Paul's really not telling them anything they don't or shouldn't already know. He's going to quote here from Psalm 51 to 4 to make his case. The oracles of God, he's already mentioned, the word of God. and he quotes from the word of God. That you may be justified in your words and overcome when you are judged. The U here is probably capitalized, as it should be, because he's talking about God. This comes from David's repentance psalm. In Psalm 51, David is repenting over his sin. You might recall that he sinned. He saw Bathsheba. He took her. He had a child with her. That's a problem for him. So he kills her husband. Now he's an adulterer and a murderer. It took him about a year before Nathan comes in, and Nathan, the prophet of God, comes to him, tells him this little story. David realizes he has sinned, and he repents. So he writes Psalm 51, and it says, after Nathan came, and after he saw his sin and repented, he writes this, and he starts it in verse. Oh, I'm sorry, in verse three, he says, "For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me." Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And here's the quote that Paul uses. So that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. The words are a little different because Paul's using the the Greek translation, the Septuagint. But it's essentially the same. And God spoke truth about David's sin. Through Nathan the prophet, the truth of David's sin came to him from God. God said that David's sin would bring about consequences in David's life. And if you read 2 Samuel, you'll see all the consequences over and over. Disruption in his family. People die. His own sons die. One rapes the sibling, his sister. I mean, it's just over and over all these consequences. And God said that would happen. But God also said, you're forgiven, David. These things will happen, but you are forgiven of your sin. God's words to David were true. Just as God's words about man's sinfulness in general are true. God is the judge and he is just. And because God is always faithful and what he says is trustworthy, he will overcome when man tries to judge him. That's what David is saying. Can you imagine that? You're in the middle of your repentance and you're feeling the weight of your sin and you're rejoicing that God has forgiven you. And you say this statement that you are justified when you speak. In other words, everything... God said about David's sin is true and blameless when you judge. God will stand up to anything we try to throw at him. It's a sin to do it. It's a sin to try to judge God. But mankind does it. And the Jews were doing it in Paul's day. They were saying, God must be unfaithful, Paul, according to what you're saying with your gospel. And Paul says, hold on. Look at what David says. Everybody looked to David. He was the king of Israel, the ideal king. But they didn't see The King Jesus Christ who came in the flesh, the Son of God, to save sinners. God keeps his word. God keeps his promises. He said he would curse those who disobey him. And he's done that with Israel. But he's also said he will fulfill every promise he made to them. Just because they don't believe. Just because they don't believe does not invalidate God's faithfulness. He keeps his promises. He will punish people forever for their sin if they don't believe in Christ. He will also bless and give eternal life to all those who do trust in Christ. It's sort of popular today for people to say there is no hell. Even even some Christians, professing Christians, will say there is no hell. Or God won't punish forever, just a short time. But do you see what happens when we take away the curses? God says, I will bless those to Israel who follow him and he will curse them. God says in the New Testament, all those who follow Christ will have eternal blessings, but eternal punishment for those who disobey and don't believe. Now, if we take away half of that, we've just said God's word isn't true. We just said God's promises to punish forever aren't true. And we don't realize we're also taking away the message of the gospel, that there's eternal life for those who believe. There's both. There's punishment for those who don't believe. There's blessing for those who do believe. As Christians, we cannot call God a liar by changing his word. That's what the Jews were accusing Paul of. They were saying, look, Paul, you're changing the Bible up. You're you're giving a new message. It's not in scripture. And Paul says, it is in scripture. Let me quote right from David. Paul's not lying. His conscience is clear. Gospel. He's given the truth and they will not accept it. And they'll continue to raise objections. We'll look at the next two next week. But you need to remember how important today the Word of God is. God is perfectly trustworthy and true. But we, we can't be trusted. We go to the Word to get truth. We go to the Word to find out what the Gospel is. We don't make it up. We don't throw our objections at the Bible and criticize it. It stands over us. It is our judge. God, through His Word, judges us when we sin. And He is always perfect. So let's obey scripture, let's know scripture, let's honor God as we study and read scripture and hear it preached and pray for his help as we live out a Christian life, amen? Lord, we do thank you for this message that Paul gave. It was about 2,000 years ago that he gave it, but it's still relevant today. Let us never set the Bible aside. They're your very words, they're perfect, they're trustworthy, they're true. And we know you'll keep your promises, The promises you gave to Israel, the promises you give to each believer. You have promised us so much in Christ. And I pray that we would honor that, we would respect that, we would love you all the more because of that and truly live out holy lives before you. In Jesus' name, amen.